Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy New Year. So excited to be doing this for another year. I look back and think like, man, it's been, we started this in 2019, which seems like forever ago. Yeah. It feels like forever and ago to everybody though, because of, you know, how, what happened. Yeah. There were some rough long years <laughs> in the interim from 2019 until now. And I'm so glad we had our podcast to distract us through all of that. And it's crazy to look back on all the episodes that we've done and see like just the volume of stuff that we have covered. It's like really crazy. Yeah, we're probably I, going to pass a uh, hundred episodes this year, which is insane to think about. So thank you uh, at home for sticking with us through this. And before we get into the episode today, I wanted to read a review because we had a review come in and it makes me so happy when we get reviews, especially ones like this, which was a five-star review titled Hilarious and Engaging Podcast. And so this individual says, after giving us five stars, this has quickly become my favorite podcast, which again, boggles my mind that people listen to us in the first place, let alone that we could be <laughs> someone's favorite podcast. Like, yeah, it's so engaging. I learn so much and there's never ending content for them to pull from. So I hope they continue forever and ever. I also get so many book recommendations from Katrina and they're all bangers. Yes. From I make edits X, 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 via Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. I make edits X, 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 X for that wonderful review. Thank you for saying that we're your favorite podcast. I also get so many great book recommendations from Katrina and I'll have to take your word for that they're bangers because I read absolutely none of them. But I love the information that she shares with me from them and I hope everyone else does too. As you do, I make it. It's X, 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 That's what somebody was like, oh, you're quite the book peddler. And I was like, am I? Like, <laughs> I, because I, I do, I'm like, oh, here's the book that I'm like currently reading and whether I mean to be like endorsing it or saying like, oh yeah, go out and get it or not. Like when I mention it, there are like a certain number of people who are like, now I'm interested. Now I want to like go in, the, which great, because then I have people to talk to about all the books reading because we're reading similar books so thank you so much for writing a wonderful review we love reading them love getting great reviews so if you have not yet left us a review kind listener and you love us as much as this person does we would love to hear from you we read them on the podcast time again as they come in so if you want us to read your wonderful glowing review Go and write one. Easy as that. Which that reminds me, I need to go and leave some reviews for uh, different podcasts that I've been listening to and enjoying. Because I know that like that is how like independent podcasts can get more people to listen to their podcast is by having like positive reviews from like people who've been listening. So I need to do a better job of doing that for the podcast that I love too. Yeah, it's a great way to support the podcast that you love. I should follow your example as well and do likewise. All right. What are we talking about today, Katrina? I am so excited for today because we are starting our Snow White journey that we've been mm. hyping. I feel like we've been hyping it for years because I've I've been kind of like, oh, let's do kind of like one thing at a time, not yeah. 
every single project simultaneously, which is what my brain wants to do. My brain oh, yeah, is, is like, oh, you know what? You can do all of these things at the same time. I'm like, no, I can't because that would be impossible. Settle down, brain, one thing at a time. But ever since we did Beauty and the Beast, you know, we've been planning, okay, what is the next kind of like long project? Because some of those bigger tales that are the ones that are the most well-known, they usually also have a long history that has built on itself and built on itself until you have the product that has come to us through usually like Disney or a big book or even, you know, the Grimm's brothers themselves. So it's interesting to, before you get to the story that everybody feels like they already know really well, they already have a good grasp on, to back up to earlier versions and put the pieces all together. So that's what we're going to yeah. be doing for the Snow White mm, project. It's like a puzzle for your brain. And that's the kind of puzzle that I like. It's a puzzle for academics. And then they write massive books about it. <laughs> And they're called, well, I was going to say massive books. And they're called dissertations. But those are not really massive books. Those are tiny books, really. Tiny books that you that you write so that you can get the letters after your name so that people really listen to you when you write your massive books. I mean, some people, it's a tiny book. Some people, they really go for it. So one of the books that we will probably be referencing a lot this year, not as much, I don't think, as uh, The Arabian Nights, A Companion by Robert Irwin. <laughs> But uh, one of the books that we will probably be referencing several times this year is The Fairest of Them All by Maria Tatar. Oh, man, Maria Tatar. Just the tops when it comes to the type of information that you tell me on this podcast that I enjoy. Maria Tatar is like S tier. Absolutely. material. Yes. Which I have to put it in such like a weird roundabout way because I haven't read any of her books, which I do feel <laughs> bad about. But like yeah. all the stuff that I've heard about her books and heard from her books from exclusively you has been fantastic. We're big Maria Tatar fans here. Yeah, we are. And this is actually the book that came out in 2020. And I believe I talked about it when I bought the book and when I was reading it. And I was like, oh, we're definitely going to be getting, you know, some episodes like out of this. And and I had kind of felt bad for her because because the book came out in mm. 2020. Yeah. The like launch got messed up. Yeah, her launch got messed up for the, the book, but really, really good. And then the book I believe that came out next was Heroin with a Thousand and One Faces, which also great book. That we did use material from during our Thousand One Nights thing. So even though we had hyped up the fact that we'd be using material from this book, Ferris of them all, we used the book that came out later, sooner. Yeah. And now, three years later, we're getting to Ferris of them all. In the preface to The Fairest of Them All by Maria Tatar, just right at the beginning, she says, There is a moment in the biopic Tolkien when a professor of philology at Oxford explains how words work their magic. Quote, a child points and he's taught a word. End quote. Over time, that word oak, in this case, comes to be invested with meaning. The boy stands beneath its branches for shelter. He sleeps under it. He passes it on his way to war. A spirit may have dwelt in its trunk. Its wood may have been used to build boats. Its leaves are carved on monuments. All this, we are told, the general and the specific, 
the national and the personal, all this, he knows and feels and summons somehow, however faintly. Words live, breathe, and resonate. Oh, and this is why we love Maria Tatar. Ooh. Look at that. That is just poetry right there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, that's paragraph one of uh, the preface <laughs> to this book. Excellent. And I absolutely love that. That really encapsulates like what we're trying to do with the Snow White project and kind of what we did with Beauty and the Beast, which is to make people realize that kind of in a cultural memory, all of the little pieces that are held within the story, even though they might be briefly mentioned, just a bite of an apple, it comes loaded with all of these other stories from a cultural past. Mm. And even if we feel it only faintly, and the story, like it is still there. And to make the story even richer, a story that uh, most people who are listening to a fairy tale and folklore podcast have probably heard the story of Snow White before. <laughs> but we're going to, through this project, kind of make sure that our understanding of that story is very aware of all of those elements that have been like passed on through that cultural knowledge and that's the thing that gets my brain just tingling with excitement is these like small details that expand out into these like really rich you know like histories and symbols and meanings and all this stuff it's just like why well, i love being a part of this podcast so you've got me ready and so in the live we kind of teased this a little bit where we just kind of briefly told the story of idun and her apples and we kind of linked this idea of apples to eternal youth, because that's how the Asir gods were able to maintain this eternal youth, this idea of apples connected with the fear of aging and what happens, you know, when people start to become afraid of aging and lengths that they're willing to go. And already so much like, you know, Snow White coming to mind. Yeah. Just in that one little thing. Yeah. And it's just it's just like a tiny itty bitty like piece of the puzzle. So today we're going to be talking about the Apple of Discord <laughs> and the Trojan War. <laughs> yeah. The Apple of Discord really threw me off when Katrina told me that that's the story we're going to talk about because it just like malfunctioned my brain because like Apple and Discord are both, you know, like big names in like tech companies and stuff. So <laughs> yeah. it's just like, are we making a hard turn with this podcast? We're no longer going to be doing folk tales and, and uh, folklore and fairy tales in 2023. We're going to be a, a, a tech podcast from here on out. But no. This is a tech and Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> what a great what a great year to be starting after you know tech stocks and bitcoin have just like plummeted in value we really really missed the boat <laughs> we're extremely late adopters <laughs> yeah we're just talking about stories that have been out for just hundreds and hundreds of years like truer words have never been spoken late adopters but i will say the apple of discord is a fantastic fairy tale title Fantastic title, period. So with a lot of stories in Greek mythology, there are so many side quests, side stories, little bits. And also to have the story that I'm about to tell of the Trojan War piece of things come into it. It involves uh, multiple different writings 
People will sometimes like simplify and then misunderstand stories from different mythologies because so often they are given to us in stories that are kind of taking a lot of different stories from different places, given a more coherent through line. Mm. And then they're like, oh, that is the story when really we have several different books that are written focusing on different characters in the tale. And there's not really like one true story, one canonical story that makes sense all in one piece. Yeah. People just have come in and created that um, for themselves. Right. Back in the day, they weren't big into making like a big cohesive cinematic universe for all yes. of these characters they were more focused on the individuals you know comic books <laughs> yeah if it makes it easier for people to think about it, it's kind of like in the new testament the four gospels if you read all of those separately from each other you'll notice that there's like inconsistencies in the timeline or multiple things happen or kind of slightly different things happen usually you know stories are created that create a clear narrative but that usually ends up taking out different pieces from other stories and then kind of adding in details from different stories to like flush out the story and so that is similar to what's going on in like greek mythologies especially if you're hearing kind of a start to finish story of the Mm. trojan war and so that people know where i'm kind of pulling the majority of the story that i'm going to be following I'm looking at the book Mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes by Edith Hamilton. And she says that she's pulling the majority of this story from the Iliad, but also some pieces from the play Trojan Women by Euripides. Also, in my brain, I'll probably end up throwing in some details from who knows where. (laughs) I'll be throwing in details that I know from like other sources that I have. And so just so you know, if you've heard the details of this told in different ways before, 100%, I believe you. There are several ways to tell this story. You're probably right. And Katrina's also right. We're all going to be right because, well, except for me, uh, because we've all read different versions, probably different sections and different things. I get it. Yeah. So if you're like, oh, I don't remember my teacher talking about this in high school when we were talking about the Iliad. Okay. I believe you. Yeah. My (laughs) high school teachers did not tell me about Zeus getting so many people pregnant with like weird hybrid animal babies. Well, buckle up. Also, there are definitely portions of this that we are like going to be condensing because I mean, the Trojan War it in this story goes on for like 10 years and there's a lot of like back and forth, back and forth. And some of the um, the dramas between the different characters is important for like the larger narrative. But some of that I'm probably going to like shorten or briefly mention, not go into detail because like it truly it's 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 one of the epics. Um, so (laughs) it's epically long. So a few side stories before we get to the main portion of the narrative, because all of this has to get set up in some way. And it is many, many tangled webs (laughs) that we weave. So before we get to what is going to be a very important wedding between King Phylus and Thetis, there was a sea nymph named Thetis. 
And it was prophesied that whoever she married, the son that she would end up having would be greater than her husband, which immediately when that was prophesied, Zeus was like, okay, I need to be somewhat involved in (laughs) who this sea nymph ends up hooking up with. Because if there's one thing that all the gods, specifically people like Zeus are afraid of, it's any type of prophecy of a son becoming stronger than his father situation. Since people might recall that all of Zeus's siblings were at one time eaten because their father had found out that one of his sons was going to destroy him. And Mm. that son was uh, Zeus. And so Zeus, you know, has a slight paranoia about... That same thing happening to him. Yeah. And as we previously discussed in this episode, Zeus is always impregnating people. So he doesn't want to accidentally impregnate someone who's going to bear a son that's even more powerful than he is that could eventually destroy him. Yeah, exactly. This is all tracking so far. And so he decides that, and several, I believe, several other gods on Mount Olympus decided that Thetis, the sea nymph, was going to marry this human king. I believe his name is Pelus. Okay. They will have a wedding that is important later. But quick side note, because it is important. The son that they ended up having was Achilles. (gasps) I know him. Oh, yeah. We're going to know him. (laughs) We're going to know him better by the end of the story. I didn't know he was the son of a sea nymph. Yeah. Very cool. It's going to be very apparent how little I know about Greek mythology the longer (laughs) this story goes on. Just so you know. (laughs) So... Meanwhile, also, there was a king and a queen who were the king and queen of Troy, and they had tons of kids. One of those kids was their son, Paris. He was not the oldest son. He was not the strongest son. He was not like, yeah, he's just a son. But it was revealed to his mother while she was pregnant that this son would be the ruin of Troy. And the mother decided that the only way to avoid this from happening, this complete ruin of Troy, was to kill her son. But she knew that she herself would not be able to kill her son. And so she gave Paris to a shepherd with the instruction to take him and have him killed. Except... The shepherd who went and took Paris did not end up having him killed. He just was like, oh, I'll just raise you away from everybody else as a shepherd, which. This is kind of sounding like the beginning of Disney's Hercules. Oh, I thought it sounded a little bit like the beginning of Disney's Snow White, except that Paris is Snow White in this situation. You are absolutely right. (laughs) Disney is just reusing the same plot point over and over. Well, not dis I'm like not Disney, but the Grimm's brothers. Like That's true. Yeah. This is how these And then Disney. So Grimm's and it's not even the Grimm's. Well it's just people. Yeah, no, it, it it really is like these same motifs that are in these mythologies like get reused and re echoed like throughout stories yeah it's not like we talk about this like every single episode i don't know why suddenly i'm like so shocked and surprised like because this happens we can have this podcast and have something to talk about (laughs) yeah because i'm like oh this thing happened you're like what (laughs) just blowing my mind like these story elements seem so familiar (laughs) i got that's the whole point of the podcast dude 
keep up. <laughs> so this shepherd decides that he's not going to kill Paris, that he's going to allow Paris to grow up and just be taught and raised as if he were a shepherd. Yeah. And like, this isn't on the shepherd, in my opinion, because two things. One, like, it's hard to kill a baby. Mm-hmm. You can't just kill a baby, you know, even if you think you could, it's it's tough. Yeah. Also, they never learn in Greek mythology. One thing that I do know, there's always a prophecy and they're always like, we got to do whatever we can to not make this prophecy come true. Yeah. And that is impossible. The prophecy is going to come true. And anything yeah. you do to not make it come true is actually going to make it come true. So it's just like, yeah, don't even bother. Just accept it. Yeah. Just. Know? Just let it happen. Just be chill. And it's not even, it's not just, you know, like Greek mythology, it happens a lot. And I'm thinking of like Moses, where, Mm -hmm. you know, the Pharaoh was like, oh, there's going to be a baby born that's going to cause problems or whatever. I should have all these kids killed. And then Moses gets secreted away and raised in his own palace. Mm -hmm. And then it, you know, comes back. And then causes all kinds of problems. Yeah, I mean, the main thesis of a lot of like mythologies is don't try to stop what is fated from happening because you'll only make it happen. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know what? Just because you don't want it to happen, I'm going to make it happen even harder. That's what fate says to you. Yeah. So now that we have a little bit of this backstory, we go to the wedding between King Pelas and Thetis the Sea Nymph. So it was a big, wonderful wedding that was celebrated by all the gods, especially because they helped to set it up uh, so that this lady didn't accidentally end up having like the most powerful child of all. (laughs) Yeah. And so and there's always some relation to the gods, whether, you know, is like the granddaughter of a Zeus or a Poseidon or whatever. Yeah. They're like, we got to keep it in the family, but yeah. you know, not so in the family that it becomes like a, a problem. So they decided that they were going to have a really big wedding, wonderful feast, but they decided that they were not going to invite the goddess of discord. <laughs> oh yeah. That seems pretty obvious. Like you want to have a good party. Maybe don't invite Discord into this gathering. Yeah. (laughs) So the one person that they decided not to invite was the goddess of Discord, Eris, which she still found out about the party. (laughs) And now she knew that she was not invited, which made her mad. Gave her something to, you know, sow some Discord about. Yeah. Which she's like, oh, you didn't want me at the party before. Now you're really not going to want me at the party because now I'm coming mad. Which might remind people a lot of Sleeping Beauty. Yes. Another sleeping princess. Another person that you don't want to invite to your child's birthday party is someone whose name is Maleficent, which just means like evil. You don't want to invite evil and discord to your kid's birthday party. That's what I always say. But sometimes it comes anyway. (laughs) So when the goddess of discord found out that she was not invited to this wedding, she decided that she was going to cause a little mischief, cause a little strife. And, you know, we've all had, listen, we've all had family dinners that have gotten tense. Okay. Family (laughs) events that have gotten a little tense. And she thought that that'd be a wonderful way to get back at everybody. And so she took 
a golden apple and in different like versions are like she threw it into the party or delivered it to the party like there it's unclear exactly how you know did this just like plonk <laughs> into like the middle of their table or did she bring it herself and you know set it down i don't know i like imagining it splashing down into a punch bowl i like that too splashing down into a punch bowl and they're like hey what is this and they pull it out of the punch bowl and they look and inscribed on the apple, it says, it either says to the most beautiful or to the fairest. Mm. We'll get into like the translation of it. It's really interesting. In English, there is this little play on words for English speakers of the word fairest because fairest is used in like beautiful in a very like gentle ethereal way but it also can mean the most just Mm -hmm. but that doesn't exist in all languages and so probably like the clearest translation would be to the most beautiful Mm -hmm. but it does serve our purposes more if we say uh to the fairest since that's the phrase that people most associate with the story of snow white but yeah the best translation is to the most beautiful Of course, that immediately starts a discussion of, oh, who at this party was this apple meant to come to? Which which of us could that possibly be? So there was, you know, a little bit of discussion and argument and people putting forth different names. But it ultimately was decided that the three front runners for the prize would be Hera, Athena, or Aphrodite. Mm. Three women who you definitely want to have an argument with. (laughs) So obviously the most likely person to give this prize, to pass out this prize, to award it, would be Zeus, you know, the ruler of all of the gods, except that his wife is one of the top three. (laughs) Yeah. And he is like, I'm going to lose no matter who gets this apple. I'm going to be the biggest loser. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously Zeus isn't going to be the one that will want to pick because we've got Hera, his wife, Athena, who is his daughter and his daughter alone. She was birthed from uh, his head. And in the Iliad, uh, Aphrodite is also his daughter, but with uh, another woman that was not Hera. Yikes. Yeah. Him being the person to decide who gets this this apple, like he understood this is only going to be a problem for me. This is not good news, no matter how I pass this out. That goddess of discord, she really knew the best way to uh, ruin everything. So Zeus decided to give the responsibility of deciding to a shepherd boy named Paris. Oh my gosh. And he's going to ruin everything. <laughs> You ruined everything, you stupid... Paris. Paris. So, the three goddesses take the apple and they go out to this hill right outside of Troy where they find this shepherd boy, Paris. And he is currently living with a nymph named O-E-N-O-N-E. Anoni. Which is important to the story later because they are, it sounds like lovers and in a relationship. So each of those three goddesses, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, come to Paris and tell him, we need you to judge which of us deserves this apple, it says to the most beautiful. (laughs) This poor man. Yeah, that's not a situation that you want. Like, even if these were mortal women, 
like that's not something that you want to have to have you know the responsibility of doing no. let alone when these are like three of the most powerful goddesses in your you know pantheon yeah where you're like i don't want to make any of them mad if i make any of them mad it doesn't matter how happy i make one of them there's gonna be two others that hate me like there's not uh. like a really good way and at this point, it stops being a beauty contest and it starts being more about what they can offer to Paris. So mm. Hera tells him that she can make him the lord of Europe and Asia, which mm, sounds pretty good. Yeah. I don't eh, I wouldn't want to. Like, I don't want to be in charge of that much stuff. Maybe just France for you, Paris. <laughs> Hilarious. So Athena tells him that she will help him to lead the Trojans to victory against the Greek, who they kind of have a tumultuous relationship with generally. And Aphrodite promises to give Paris the fairest woman in all of the world. And so Paris <laughs> thinks about this for a little bit. And I don't I don't know whether he was fully aware of who currently was the fairest woman of all, uh, but apparently Aphrodite did know who the fairest mortal woman of them all was. And it was Helen, Helen of Troy, not Helen of Troy at the time. Mm. Helen, who was actually currently married to a king in Greece. She was already married. And that's not good. <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure that Paris knew that at the time. So Paris, what he ended up choosing was he wanted to have the fairest woman of them all in the world fall madly in love with him. What a dumb shepherd boy choice to make. <laughs> not to mention, like, he's already, you know, kicking it with this nymph out yeah. in the woods. Like... How about you just enjoy what you got while you got it, man? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Boobs like, are boobs are boobs. <laughs> are boobs at all not boobs enough? Little boobs are fine. I don't know why that's like one of my absolute all-time favorite. I, don't, I think it started off as a TikTok first. I'm not, or a Snapchat video first. I'm not sure. I've sent it to you before, right? I don't know. I don't man, think so. I'm feeling make, like this is the first time that I've heard serious? this. It is yes. so funny because he's got like a voice filter on. And so it's like an all shaky and he's like, boobs are boobs are boobs. He's like yelling, <laughs> yelling out like a friend. He's like, little boobs are fine. Are boobs at all not boobs enough? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I do love that filter <laughs> or that voice effect. I quote that all the time because it's just like with, with not just in regards to like boobs, but like. But just that phrase, like, are boobs at all not boobs enough? <laughs> that That's poetry. Yeah. Where it's like, you are at Paris. You already had yeah. a wood nymph that you were having a good time with, hooking up with. And then he's like, oh, you know what? Actually, yeah, I think I want to be with the fairest woman in the world. And so immediately when he declares that that is what he wants, um, Aphrodite gets the apple, I guess, and then <laughs> takes him to go and meet up with Helen. So important to note, he leaves the wood nymph brokenhearted mm. on that hill, which sucks for her. Sucks for her. It's important later. 
And he's not making a fan out of me, that's for sure. No. He is, ugh, this man. Anyway, so Aphrodite takes Paris to this kingdom in Greece where Helen is currently living with, I told you, her husband. So backing up a little bit, Helen is actually the daughter of Zeus and Leda. Leda has a husband and he is a king, but Zeus came to Leda in the form of a swan and they achieved sexual congress uh, together with each other. Was that as creepy as I wanted it to be? It was very creepy. Yeah, thanks. Good. Anyway, Leda ends up giving birth to two eggs. <laughs> a human woman. Yes. Giving birth to two swan eggs. I don't like I don't like that image. No, I don't like that me- mental image at all. Sounds uh, so horrible. But that's what happens when Zeus is in the form of a swan. Frankly, yeah. I don't. It seems like any form Zeus is in, I don't want that. Yeah. Whether he's in the form of a man or uh, a swan or a pile of gold coins or a bull, I don't care. <laughs> I, all of them sound horrible and I hate them all. Did the gold coins one actually happen or did you make that up? No, the gold coin one did actually happen. I can't remember to who. He made love to someone as a pile of gold coins? Yeah, which, listen, I, like, just (laughs) imagining, like, hard gold coins getting chucked at my nethers, I'm not into it. Yeah, hard pass. Zeus? It was a hard pass. That's why I wouldn't have (laughs) done it. It Super hard pass. Dana? Dania? Had been seen and grown fond of her. So during the night, he appeared in the form of golden rain. Oh, maybe it wasn't gold coins. It was a golden shower. It was a golden shower. <laughs> oh, okay. Much more understandable. And apparently that's where Perseus came from. Oh, lovely. So she gives birth to these two eggs, and each egg contains two babies. So one <laughs> egg had two boys in it. The other egg had Helen and a sister who has a super long name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce right now. This is so crazy. The two eggs, but both eggs were double yoked. That's rare. Yeah. I mean, and so is a woman birthing two eggs to begin with. But do you know what's crazy is my mom actually looked up this one time because she had she had bought like a container of like 60 eggs and more than half of them were double yoked. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was insane. She was taking pictures of like every single one (laughs) when it happened. That's awesome. Because she was trying to keep track of like how many it was. So she ended up looking up. Yeah, like like what causes like double yoking to happen? And apparently it happens when chickens are younger and their body is still kind of like getting mm. into like getting into the rhythm of having just the, the normal process of one one yolk inside like one. egg. Yeah. So it more is more likely to happen to the first eggs of like of a, a chicken. Hen. Interesting. Yeah. So, which is probably what happened to Lita. Those yeah. were her first eggs. So, more likely to be <laughs> yeah. W. So, that does make sense. I'm glad it's tracking with biology as well. <laughs> I'm glad it's tracking with biology. <laughs> yep. If you remember nothing from this story, just remember that it tracked really well with biology. <laughs> you, In fact, you could probably use this uh, this podcast episode in a health class. Yeah. Cite us. <laughs> I dare you. Our lawyers would like <laughs> not quote us at all during any health class ever. Anyway, 
So, but these children were raised by their mother, Lita, and a king, King Tydris. It's neither here nor there for what we're talking about. When she, when Helen got older, and she was clearly like one of the most beautiful women in the world, R.I.P. her sister. (laughs) (laughs) When she was the most beautiful woman, all of these men were coming, all these potential suitors. Her father didn't know which one he was going to pick. And he was actually, he became afraid that the ones that didn't get picked, because there were so many that wouldn't get picked, obviously, he was concerned that they were going to unite against him and fight him because they'd be so angry that they didn't get picked to have his daughter. Mm -hmm. So what he decided to do was before he announced who was going to get his daughter, he made all of these potential suitors promise that no matter who he picked, if anything ever happened to Helen, if Helen ever needed like basically rescuing or, or that the kingdom needed help, something like that, that they were pledging to like take care of her, save her, honor her like that was what they were going to do. So it was in all of their best interest to promise this level of loyalty. Yeah. Because they really wanted to be picked. So they all promised uh, that level of loyalty. Setting up these dominoes just for Paris to come and knock them down. Yeah. Because Paris wasn't among the potential suitors like at all because he was a shepherd boy out on the hills outside of Troy. So... All of these men made all these promises. The king ended up choosing Menelaus, who's the brother of Agamemnon. Agamemnon, that's important for later. He was uh, He's a big name throughout this story. So Menelaus gets chosen. He marries Helen. All the other suitors go back to their own homes and kingdoms because, you know, they didn't get picked. But still with that loyalty pledge that was there. So Aphrodite takes Paris to the Menelaus's kingdom. Menelaus isn't home, but he gets taken. Paris gets taken in to this home and taken care of as a guest should. And there is this relationship between guests and their hosts that was just culturally understood that you by being a guest in somebody's home are going to honor them, honor their property, maintain their trust by being a trustworthy person. Meanwhile, the people who are hosting you, same goes for them. They're going to treat you with kindness, respect, and knowing that you're going to reciprocate. So while Paris was there in this like palace, obviously this is where he has his meet cute with Helen And with the help of Aphrodite, who had promised him, you know, the fairest woman in the world, Helen started to fall in love with Paris. And finally, Paris was able to convince her to run away with him. And so the two of them in the middle of the night leave the palace together and run off. Obviously, Menelaus, when he gets back from his trip and finds out what has happened, that this guy Paris disappeared off towards Troy. He was furious. That was his wife. He told his brother Agamemnon, tell everybody that we are going to go get my wife back. 
Meanwhile, Paris is back in Troy. And at some point in this story, he finds out uh, that he is the son of the king of Troy. And so he goes to the king and is like, hey, I'm your son. I want to be taken back. (laughs) So the king allows him to come back in. The only person who wasn't super thrilled about this was his brother, who I want to say is named Hector, but I'm doubting myself for a second. So Hector, he's like the biggest, most important of the children of the king. He is big and beefy. He is the next in line for the throne. He is the best fighter that they have. He is married and he has a young infant son which is sadly important to the story. Oh. He is not super impressed by this like brother coming out of nowhere, especially this brother who is appears to not be that great of a warrior, n- be very selfish and has just done this completely irrational irresponsible thing of kidnapping the wife of Greek royalty. And so Hector's like, no, I don't like this kid. I'm not super thrilled about this situation that we are in right now. Meanwhile, Agamemnon is gathering up people for his brother to help get his brother's wife back. And Agamemnon is gathering up some of the heavy hitters. Some of the heavy hitters do not want to come and be part of this. Unfortunately, they probably promised. Yep, they had promised. So Odysseus who had promised, you know, years before to pledge his loyalty. This is before I'm assuming he was married to his person. He does not want to go. And so he decides what he was going to do was he was going to pretend to be insane. And so when people came to collect him to go, you know, join this like military force, he was like throwing uh, salt out into his field and plowing it, (laughs) pretending that it was like seeds so that he would look like a crazy person. But somebody uh, got the best of him, which is pretty surprising because Odysseus in the mythologies is considered to be, you know, like the the trickster character, the Uh. like very wily, crafty, smart. But anyway, so somebody grabbed his son and put his son in front of the plow and immediately Odysseus like stopped what he was doing and plowing because he didn't want to hit his son with the plow. And that's when they were like, OK, so you're not crazy. You are in your right mind, which, listen, I don't know if that's a good test of insanity, because like, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes people can be doing things where like, they are having an episode, but they also are like, oh, I'm enough in touch with reality to know that like this would be bad. Yeah. Like, you know, running over your son with a plow. Yeah. Oh, by the way, all of this should have come with a an absolute trigger warning. When you see that that it's from Greek mythology, you just know that it's going to be full of all of the warnings for all of the things. Yeah, major one for uh, violence, violence against women, violence against children, violence against uh, other soldiers, war. Uh, there's very violence, very violence. Trigger warning, very violence. Not to mention, yeah, like (laughs) Zeus doing his Zeusing around and men treating women like um, garbage cattle and um, property, property slaves. It's horrible. Anyway, so Odysseus joins the group. Achilles ends up joining 
the group as they are making their way up to Troy, which it was kind of hard to get Achilles to come on the journey as well because his mother had this prophecy that her son would either grow old in obscurity, have a long life in obscurity, or live a short life that would be legendary. And she had tried to protect him by having him dipped in the river Styx. Mm -hmm. And again, famously, she held him by the ankle, dipped him in the river Styx, but where her hand was covering his ankle, it didn't go into the water. And so that was his one area of weakness. Became his Achilles heel. <gasps> That's where the term comes from. Just kidding. Oh Obviously, I knew that. <laughs> and Ajax's knee is another one that's... I was, that was a joke. I'm so sorry. Ajax is also in this story. Ajax the greater and Ajax the lesser. Does he take an arrow to the knee? No. I was, oh. I was, I was joking. Got it. <laughs> That's getting cut. All right. So it was actually Odysseus who went to get Achilles. And it was funny because another added uh, precaution that Thetis had gone through to protect Achilles was she had taken him to this one island that was full of courtly women, had dressed Achilles up as a woman and he was hiding in this like harem of ladies. Odysseus, when he went to go get him, he, you know, saw all of these like women knew that Achilles had to be disguised in there somewhere. So what Achilles did was he um, started passing out presents to the women and it said like really like girly items, just I'm assuming like jewelry. And uh, (laughs) the girliest item there. It was one of the most uniquely feminine things that I could think of. All right. Because you're you're like men wear jewelry, Katrina. So he's like passing out these things, but he also has some like military type items in there, uh, like armor and sword Mm -hmm. and whatever. And so he sees one of the ladies kind of eyeing some of the like sword and armor stuff. And then Odysseus has like a war, it was like a, like a war horn or whatever blasted, basically uh, one that's usually to be like, like warning, we're about to be like attacked, like we're under like yeah. attack. And quickly uh, Achilles like rips off his like lady clothes and grabs the sword to like go to fight, to like defend. And Odysseus is like, haha, got you. <laughs> <laughs> Odysseus. Hop in, losers. We're going shopping. So as they were on the ships going up, they came upon a wind that would not let them uh, go past. They were stuck pressing against this like wind that kept like pushing them back or just like would not allow them like to advance. And they started to be like, oh, what's going on? And this prophet said, oh, well, some of our soldiers, and I thought this was really interesting. Some of our soldiers have angered the goddess Artemis by killing a rabbit mother and all of her children. Mm. Which I wonder how much of that is like a rabbit mother and her children. It just makes me think of like all of the like human mothers and children that are about to be like greatly, like families are about to be like killed, decimated, destroyed, put in bad situations or whatever. So 
Artemis is angry with the all of like the Greek army that's like headed out there and won't let them pass. And they're told the only way that Artemis is going to let them pass is if they sacrifice one of Agamemnon's like greatest loves, one of his like most important things. And so he decides that that is his daughter and that he has to sacrifice and kill his daughter so that they can get their war going. Yeah. So Agamemnon tells his daughter that, oh, Achilles really wants to marry you. I I think it would be really great if you married Achilles. So you should come out to uh, this wedding. And I believe there's like a famous, uh, there's probably several famous paintings of this story happening where Agamemnon's daughter is coming to what she thought was a wedding. And then she realizes as she's approaching the altar that it's not a wedding altar. It's a sacrificial altar. Yikes. Then her father takes her and like slits her throat. Jeez. But this deed, it was like prophesied that like this deed would not go unpunished. Mm -hmm. So as they are trying to head up towards Troy, they kind of like land their ships and they start taking their army headed up towards Troy, destroying all of like the city's villages that are leading up to it. And they are taking people, mostly women, everybody else, they're kind of like slaughtering. But they're keeping some of the women as war prizes. Mm. And Agamemnon and Achilles both take women as their war prizes. They're now they're like concubines, but really it's like sex slavery. Yeah. Which again, important later on. So the battles between Troy and the Greek armies go on for. It goes on for 10 years, but for like nine years, it's very slow going with like nobody really advancing forward. It kind of being stuck in a deadlock. And part of the reason why I was in a deadlock was because they were so evenly matched with like big heroes on either side. The Trojan side, Hector, who was like very big time military. And then on the other side, you have like Odysseus, Ajax, Ajax the Lesser, Achilles, Agamemnon. You, I'm like, it sounds like there's more. Like on that side, heavy hitters, Hector was a big deal. On the Trojan side. But you also had all of the gods and goddesses who were taking sides as well. Mm. And so you had the gods and goddesses throughout the story who were doing different things behind the scenes to affect things for either side. So they were both like on either side pretty evenly matched. So something that's interesting is that at this point, both Hector and Achilles knew that they were going to die before the war was over. Both of these like big name heavy hitters knew that it was prophesied that they were going to die before it was over and that their fate was kind of tied to each other. That like if one died shortly after, the other would die too. Mm-hmm. So while this kind of like deadlock, even match was going on, you have Achilles and Agamemnon that end up having a quarrel between the two of them. One of the women that Agamemnon had taken as a war prize, 
her father was a priest of Apollo. And so this priest had kind of like gone to Apollo and prayed that his daughter would be saved from these Greek people who had kidnapped his daughter, specifically mm-hmm. Agamemnon. Apollo heard this prayer, one of his most famous, one of his most ardent priests, you know, that had served him for so long. So what Apollo does is he shoots down these fiery arrows into the Greek army. And they've been described in different ways of like, it wasn't just that he was like setting things on fire. It was like pestilence, like it was like Mm. disease. And, you know, so these people... And the Greek army, even without being like battling, the Trojans were starting to die. You know, this priest came to explain, you know, what was going on that, oh, they've angered Apollo because you've kidnapped this daughter. And so Achilles calls kind of a group chat for everybody to come, all of the heads of the military to have this conversation. Achilles is like, Agamemnon, you need to give this woman back. You shouldn't have, you took her as a war prize. You need to give her back because you're causing like all this destruction to go on. And Agamemnon was like, absolutely not. I claimed her fair and square, which, oh my goodness. Women are not objects. Anyway, so he was like, no, I'm not giving her up and you have no right to tell me to do that. And Achilles was very much like, no, we are not going to be able to fight this war on two fronts, which is, I think, a famous quote from Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, we can't be fighting the Trojans and fighting off this pestilence. We have to get rid of this woman. You need to give her back to her father so that we can move on. So it was agreed by everybody pretty much except Agamemnon to give this woman back to her father, the priest of Apollo. So Agamemnon is angry because now he doesn't have the war, his favorite war prize. He thinks that Achilles shouldn't have his favorite war prize either, which was this other woman. Mm-hmm. So Agamemnon sent his soldiers to come to Achilles's tent and take away his war prize woman. So when those messengers come to get this woman, Achilles is like, You tell Agamemnon that if he is going to treat me this way, if he's going to treat anybody this way, I'm not fighting on his side anymore. That's it. I'll be at the boats if you need me. And he goes all the way back to the boats to hang out with uh, some of his friends. And he took like all of his soldiers and stuff with him. And so Achilles and all of his friends left, which now is swaying things to Troy's side. Mm -hmm. Because now you have less power on the Greek side. What's interesting too is that when Achilles was insulted in this way, Thetis, Achilles' mother, went to Zeus to ask Zeus if he could, to help the Trojans. And that was interesting, just, you know, the dynamics of all of it, because it was like, Aphrodite was on the side of Paris in Troy, obviously, because... Mm -hmm. She was the one that kind of made the whole thing happen. Yeah, got him into this mess. But Poseidon, he favored the Greek people because they were people who had built on the sea and honored him because of that. So he was like, well, I'm obviously like on the Greek side. Apollo was on Hector's side. So he cared about the Trojans. And Artemis did as well. And Artemis is like a healer. And so that was good, you know, for them. Yeah. 
And apparently Zeus favored the Trojans as well, but he wanted to be more neutral because... It's like, I want to come out on top no matter which way this goes, so I'm just going to play the middle as best I can. <laughs> well, and like Hera was on, like I guess, the Greek side, so he wanted to make sure that he wasn't outrightly anti his mm. wife. Yeah. And... Yeah, so it like all the gods and goddesses, it was this big mess. So it was basically decided at some point that what should happen since they were like, you know, kind of like evenly matched and there's been like this nonstop thing was they were like, all right, well, you know what? How about we send out the two people that this argument is actually about? Like Trojans send out Paris and the Greeks send out Melinus to fight for his wife back. So both of them are sent out to fight each other, which I'm like, listen, that does sound pretty sensible to just be like, you know what? This is between the two of you. This shouldn't like, or rather this should be uh, Helen's decision. Yeah, but. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We can dream, Katrina. We can dream. <laughs> so. The two of them, Paris and Melinus, are fighting, and or Menelaus. So Menelaus is much bigger, much stronger, much more capable than Paris, and mm. a lot braver as well. So as they were fighting each other, Menelaus was much more capable, and he the fight was like obviously going in one direction very, very hard. And Paris was going to die. Paris was going to get killed. And that's when Aphrodite decided to step into the issue and make it worse. So Aphrodite steps in, whisks Paris away, which is bad because now Paris, who everybody could see was going to lose, looks even weaker mm -hmm. in comparison because he got saved and the problem isn't solved because neither person was like killed and could hand over Helen. At that point, Manilus was going through the ranks of the Trojans being like, hand him over, give me Paris, hand him over, give him back. And they all who were at this point kind of willing to hand over Paris. All the yeah. Trojans were like, yeah, you can have him. They were like, we don't know where he is. Like you can't have him. So. Agamemnon came out and he declared that obviously Menelaus was the winner and that the Trojans should just give Helen back. And it said that like, this was the just and right thing to do. And the Trojans would have agreed if Athena at Hera's prompting had not interfered. So now we have oh, Athena man. and Hera back into the mix because Hera has decided that she does not want this conflict to end until Troy has completely been ruined. Oh my gosh, and ripped what to do shreds. you have against Troy, Hera? <laughs> to me, I was like, the only thing I could find was like, oh, because like she hadn't been. Oh, she, had, she wasn't chosen by Paris. <laughs> yeah, which, and essentially because like they had promised paris that he could be like the lord of europe and asia or and athena had promised to lead the trojans to victory against mm. greece if he got the right so he's like hey if you're not gonna have me lead uh the trojans to victory you're not gonna get that victory you've got to lose yeah then we're going to do like the exact opposite i gotcha so aphrodite had picked up paris 
in a cloud and like deposited him back within like the walls of Troy, where he was now injured and in hiding. And it says that like Helen was uh, kind of over him now because she was like, you're a weakling. You're a coward because you didn't just die like in battle. So she's like, I don't know. Yeah, how dare you not go and kill my husband yeah. and or die in battle? Yeah. What's one or the other, yeah. buddy? <laughs> so yeah, like, ugh, that's not, Helen, that's not great. <laughs> so Athena now is going down the battlefield and she is, you know, starting to attack people. And obviously the the tides have turned for the Trojans now, but they still had Hector, who was an incredible fighter. So we've got Aphrodite who has stepped in and inserted herself by taking uh, Paris out. But then we have Athena and Hera who have inserted themselves in by helping the Greeks attack the Trojans. So then Apollo and Artemis step in on the other side to be defending. So now we have the gods on the battlefield, everybody attacking one another back and forth. So... One of Hector's brothers urged Hector to go to the queen and ask her for one of the most beautiful robes so that they can take it to Athena's temple and offer this like beautiful robe to Athena so that maybe Athena will stop on her side, on like the Greek side. So Hector goes to his mother. His mother gives him this beautiful robe and he takes it as quickly as he can to Athena's temple to give it to her and he's like lady athena spare the city and the wives of the trojans and the little children it says but athena denied that prayer oh it was like oh geez uh before he went back to the battlefield though there's this like scene where he is like with his wife and his young son so hector is talking with his wife and his wife was basically like you are everything to me. I don't want to lose you. Please do not go into this battle and make me a widow. And she says, you're child and orphan, but like mm. fatherless. Right. And I mean, he basically told her like, you know that I can't. Yeah. I have to go into battle. I cannot be like a coward. He kind of like goes to his son and there's this, it's this like beautiful moment of like pure innocence. His son seeing his dad like fully decked out in his armor and his like big helmet. His child's really young. And at first he's like just really afraid of his because he doesn't realize it's his dad. He mm -hmm. looks like terrifying because yeah. he's in like all this armor. And his dad takes off his helmet and he is holding his son and like comforting him and caressing him. And he says, oh, Zeus. And after years, may men say of this, my son, when he returns from battle, far greater is he than his father was. Oh, that is a good wish for his kid. But that prayer is unanswered. Oh, dang it. I am so sorry to say. And he like hands his child back to his wife. And that's the last time he ever sees them. Aww. Yeah. So he goes back into battle. and. It is at this point when Zeus is reminded of uh, Thetis's like be Thetis like begging him to help her son Achilles, you know, because she's so mad at 
you know, Agamemnon disrespecting him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first Zeus had been like, oh, no, because I don't want to get Hera mad. But now, like, after everybody ev- is all involved and it's this, like, huge hubbub and, like, a thing, he was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I am going to give Hector, like, even greater strength. I'm going to, like, give this man, like, superpower <laughs> human strength because th- I, th- that one guy, I can root for him. He's a good guy. Like, we're going to, like, uh-huh. give him, like, all these powers. But after Zeus, and again, please remember, like, this was supposed to be a favor to Thetis for Achilles. Uh That he gives Hector these, like, superpowers. So now he is, like, helping the Trojans push back and push back and push back the Greeks all the way back to the boats. Like, they're all the way back to, like, shore. Yeah. And that is where Achilles and his armies are. And Achilles is hanging out with what I have seen on the internet kind of be of his very overt boyfriend. Uh-huh. Which, yeah, I would agree. And Agamemnon, in desperation, goes to Odysseus and says, Odysseus, would you be able to give Achilles back his woman war prize that I stole from him. Uh, Can you give this back to him and ask him if he will please help us? So Odysseus is like, okay, fine, I will do that. (laughs) Let's see if we can appease him and see if he can come back to fighting with us. Achilles is chilling out with Patroclus, who I have seen the internet call like Achilles' boyfriend, his like love of his life mm-hmm. and i absolutely like agree this it very much is like yeah they are definitely there's a lot of love there and i don't know because i know some people have read it where they're like oh it's just that in today's world we think like any kind of like deep overt affection between men mm-hmm. uh and we label that as like like that has to be like a homosexual relationship if mm-hmm. it's like men aren't allowed to just platonically love each other this deeply. Yeah. I'd, but listen, I don't know because I feel like it reads as a very rom- like a romance between Achilles and Patroclus. So I don't know. Do with that what you will. But here is what's about to happen. <laughs> so. <laughs> So Odysseus comes with like this war prize to give back to um, Achilles from Agamemnon. And he's like, hey, Agamemnon wants you to have this back. Will you come and fight with us? And Achilles is like, no, absolutely not. I'm not interested. Like I it he's like to me, it's it's the principle of the thing because <laughs> uh, he was like, no, he disrespected me by like coming and taking what was mine. Like that was wrong of him. How dare he? I refuse to go. So, you know, Odysseus like brought that back the next day. They went back into battle and they were fighting and trying their hardest. Meanwhile, Hera had kind of figured out that Zeus was on the side of the Trojans and was giving Hector, you know, like super powers. And she was like, okay, how can I get my husband Zeus to like look away from what's going on in the war? I know what I'll do. I'll use my womanly wiles. And this, I think, is just it's like such an important part when we're talking about not just Snow White, but like other stories about women's 
power in a lot of situations in especially fairy tales, but history. I believe it's called soft power. Uh-huh. Where they are using, they have to use like their their wit, their charm, their negotiation skills, whatever, to get the men in their lives to do what they need them to do. Because the men are the ones who have actual power. Mm-hmm. And women have to use their soft power. But in stories, it's usually treated as like, oh, and this woman used her crafty sexual ways to mm-hmm. like, you know, get what they wanted. But it is like, well, when you aren't given actual power, when you have to figure out how to get what you want through manipulative ways, then, you know, your options are what your options are. And you have to work within the framework of what you're given. Yeah. So Hera dressed up in uh, the sexiest fashion possible. In fact, she borrowed Aphrodite's girdle uh, to make her, especially appealing and to use all of the enchantments that come with uh beauty so once she had seduced zeus her husband she put him to sleep he like went to sleep so that he then you know kind of in an enchanted sleep where he an enchanted sleep where he what to where he wasn't um Going to be, uh, you know, keeping his promise to Thetis to help. Once Zeus was asleep, now the Greeks were winning. Uh, You can see, again, so much of this, like, back and forth. Why it's like, oh, this is why they were doing this for, like, nine years and not, like, getting, like, any headway. Yeah. So Ajax... He was able to throw Hector to the ground, like injure him. But before Hector could be killed, he was whisked away by another member of his army. And it says Troy might have been sacked that very day if Zeus had not awakened. So when he woke up and he uh, saw like, oh, no, now the Trojans are being attacked. Obviously, he was really upset with Hera. and. So he went to Hera and was super, super upset with her and was like, like, I know what you're doing, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, oh, no, no, I wouldn't have tried to trick you. Poseidon made me do it because he's on the side of the Greeks. So like this was like Poseidon's doing. He was like trying to do this. So he was like, whatever. I don't know if I believe you, but he sent a messenger down to go and tell Poseidon to draw back the Greek people again and to, you know, Take back his support of them. So now you have the Trojans advancing back to the seaside again. Meanwhile, Apollo is trying to help Hector. So we are back again at the boats. And this time, as they see the Greeks coming back, Patroclus turns to Achilles and is like, we have to do something. We can't just like sit here in our boats like cowards watching as all of these people are dying. and. Achilles was like, no, I will not do it. Absolutely, I will not do it. And Patroclus was like, fine, then give me your armor so that I can pretend to be you. Oh, man. And go and fight. And that is exactly what he did. Patroclus put on Achilles's armor and starts advancing. Because even looking at Achilles's armor, the Trojans were afraid and drew back. It was a psychological attack more than anything else. 
Yeah, I was wondering what that had to do with, like, why did he have to wear his armor? But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so that they would think, oh, no, Achilles is back. I'm not, yeah, psychological terror. I mean, Patroclus did know how to fight. Like, obviously, he was, like, going out and he was able to, you know, be slaying people. And also, you know, all of these Greeks also thinking that, you know, Achilles was on their side, also took heart and advanced forward and were attacking. Hector, after being healed by Apollo and Artemis, sees Achilles back on the battlefield and knew like, oh, this is, I have to do this. This, our fates are tied to each other. This is a battle that I have to fight. And so Hector goes out thinking that he's attacking Achilles and he, I don't like, I don't want to say fairly easily kills, but Hector kills Patroclus. It says that his doom was sealed as surely as a boar is doomed when he faces a lion. Because like Hector was like an absolute beast and Hector's spear stabs into Patroclus and he falls down dead. Hector at first confused by kind of like how easily that was. Pulls off Achilles's helmet and sees that it's Patroclus and not actually Achilles. And he was mm-hmm. like, oh no, what have I done? And I, I thought that I was killing Achilles, but instead, like, it's this guy. And quickly, the message is sent back to Achilles that Patroclus, his arguably his boyfriend lover, has mm-hmm. been killed. And now Achilles is like, oh no, now I am definitely going to kill this man yeah to which he's remind achilles is then reminded like no but if you if you kill hector then you'll die because your fates are tied to each other right i forgot about that so it's like it's in achilles's best interest for hector not to die yeah she's like man what am i supposed to do now i mean this is the point at which if achilles had decided to go back home He would have grown old and died in obscurity. Right. Because Mm. like, that's what the prophecy was like. It's like the fork and the. Yep. This is the decision. And he's told like, this is the decision. And he was like, no, because he killed Patroclus. He killed this like man that I deeply love and care about. Like, I will not let this stand. He says, I will no longer live among men if I if I do not make Hector pay with his death for Patroclus. Which, yeah, it's because he's like, I would be an absolute coward, like if I didn't avenge like my love's death. And this like some of these words that he says, I'm just like, I read it as like they loved each other. He says, so may I do. I who do not help my comrade in his sore need, I will kill the destroyer of him I loved. Then I will accept death when it comes. So his mother, Thetis, tells him, okay, I understand that you're going to go out and you're going to do this, but you don't have armor because his armor has now been taken. And she's like, I'm going to go to Hephaestus, the god of like metalworking and, you know, the creator of things. I'm going to go to Hephaestus and I'm going to get you divine armor so that you are then protected. So she comes back the next morning with this armor and puts it on Achilles. Achilles goes out onto the battlefield to attack. And when Hector sees him coming, he takes off running. (laughs) 
And which I was like, fair, because Achilles is 100% like fueled by rage and vendetta. And I'm going to say right now, again, trigger warning for graphic violence, because this is the part of the story where Achilles very much becomes not a hero. So Achilles is chasing down Hector and Hector is running and he the he goes around the city of Troy three times, which I thought was really interesting. Like I tried to like imagine that like scenario. Uh So he's like being chased around three times. And so Athena, who this whole time was riding known or unknown with Achilles realizes like, we can't chase this guy all day. Like this is like getting ridiculous. So she disguises herself as a friend of Hector's and basically is like, stop running. I'll fight beside you. So Hector stops running and turns around to face Achilles and obviously picture epic battle taking place. And there's even this like image back at Mount Olympus where you have like the the scales of life for both Achilles and Hector in front of like the gods. And you're like watching kind of, I mean, their life force kind of basically going kind of like up and down as fates are like turning its back and forth. But pretty soon the advantage tips and it's going to Achilles like all of the gods are kind of like, well, I mean, let's let it happen. So they're like kind of like watching these scales go back and forth. And in this book, it's the imagery is like really amazing where it's just like the gods by now were fighting too as hotly as the men and Zeus sitting apart in Olympus laughed pleasantly to himself, which I'm like, ew, gross. When he saw God matched against God, Athena felling Ares to the ground, Hera seizing the bow of Artemis from her shoulders and boxing her ears with it this way and that, Poseidon provoking Apollo with taunting words to strike him first, the sun god refusing the challenge. He knew it was of no use now to fight for Hector. Yeah, it's just like absolute full-on chaos. And the king of Troy is like watching from above, like in the battlements, watching like all of this like fighting going down. And he says that he... Uh, was thinking, I led the Trojans. Their defeat is my fault. Then am I to spare myself? And yet, what if I were to lay down shield and spear and go tell Achilles that we will give Helen back and half of Troy's treasures with her? Useless. He would but kill me unarmed as if I were a woman. Better to join the battle with him now, even if I die. As the fighting is going on, Athena then disappears from next to Hector, who had, you know, been disguised as this like a friend and loved one helping him, disappears and Achilles is taking over and Hector suddenly realizes that he is about to lose. They're talking to each other and Hector says, if I kill you, I promise to give your body back to your loved ones. Will you promise the same? And Achilles answers back, Madman, there are no covenants between sheep and wolves, nor between you and me. Oh, wow. It's like, dang, that's a line right there. (laughs) And at that point, Achilles throws his spear at Hector and he misses. Athena quickly goes to get that spear and Hector throws his spear at Achilles and it strikes the center of Achilles's shield. Um, but because it was made by Hephaestus, it glances off. 
So now Hector draws his sword, but by this time, Athena has given Achilles back his spear. So he's got a long spear and uh, Hector has just his sword and he is running at Achilles. And Achilles, because at this point, Hector is wearing Achilles's old armor that Patroclus had been wearing. Uh, but Achilles knew exactly where the weak point of that armor was. The Achilles right. heel of that armor, if you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, he knew where the weak point of where the helmet met the breastplate. Like, he knew exactly where that point was. And he aimed his spear there and was able to, before Hector even got near him with his sword, stabbed him through the throat. And he died. But. It says, with his last breath, Hector said, give back my body to my father and my brother. And Achilles said, no prayers from you to me, you dog. I would that I could make myself devour raw your flesh for the evil you have brought upon me. Because Achilles was still so upset about Patroclus's death that he just was beyond rageful mad. And this, again, trigger warning. At this point, Achilles very much ceases to be a hero in this story because he stripped Hector naked, pinned his feet to the back of his chariot, and then rode it around the outside of Troy, dragging the body of Hector behind him while Hector's family watched and while all the gods watched. And at that point, the gods were basically like, okay, I'm out. That's horrible that you would do that. I mean, like, that was basically the end of the day's battle. (laughs) It kind of took the fight out of everybody. Yeah. And so Achilles goes back to his camp. They kind of are, you know, gathering up all of their dead. And at this point, the king of Troy was like, I need my son back. Achilles had said that what his plan was to do was he was going to chop up Hector's body and feed it to dogs while he had Patroclus like on a proper funeral pyre. Like, so he mm-hmm. he was basically planning on just continuing to completely like disrespect yeah. like the body of this man. And the king, Hector's dad, was like, I need to go and get my son back. And so he got a cart full of like treasures and gold jewels, possessions, everything. And he went himself to the Greek camp. And it was at this point that Hermes, disguising himself as a Greek youth, guided the king to um, Achilles's tent. So basically, this king had like the blessings of like the gods at this point on his side who were like, wow, Achilles is not the hero in this story. (laughs) And so when the dad like went in, when he went into Achilles's tent, he said to him, remember Achilles, your own father of like years with me and like you wretched for want of his son. Yet I am by far more to be pitied who have braved what no man on earth ever did before to stretch out my hand to the slayer of my son. Wow. Dang, those are like such stirring words that he was just like, I want you to think about 
how big and how brave I am being right now to say Mm -hmm. to you, please give me my son back. No hard feelings. Yeah. Which is like way more than uh, obviously way more than like what Achilles had, you know, put forward. Yeah. When Patroclus like had died, Achilles basically promised to like give back the body of Hector and to give nine days for everybody to like properly honor their dead before fighting Mm. begins. So the funeral pyre of Hector and um, his burial, that's where the Iliad ends, which is where people are like, wait, 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 what? What happens now? We know that eventually this like horse thing gets involved. (laughs) Okay, so after that very deep, heavy, like, oh, that was a bummer of a story, um, graphicness, now... I think like the story kind of takes on this. Uh, well, because I'm like, obviously, it's like, oh, end of the Iliad. And now it's like in a different, a complete, in a tonal shift, <laughs> we have Odysseus coming in and trying to, uh, you know, get things figured out. So the rest of this story is from Virgil or the majority of it. And. We also have some from Sophocles and Euripides. So again, the story continues, but it's a mashup of like different stories. Because like I said, there's not one Mm. story that's like everything or at least everything that's all the big stories that, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, what about this part? Oh, didn't this thing happen? It's like, yeah, but all in different pieces, like all over the place. So now that Hector is dead. Thetis knows that her son Achilles is going to die because like their fates are, again, tied to each other. So after nine days of the burial, presumably fighting continued and more and more fighting. So by this time, I guess Paris was feeling better and more healed. And he was the one that as Achilles was like leading an army and fighting Paris was up with like a bow and arrow and he shot an arrow at Achilles and Apollo on the side of the Trojans guided Mm. that arrow directly to the spot on Achilles's heel that killed him. It is said in the story that like after Achilles is like shot and killed by Paris, Ajax takes uh, Achilles's body and removes it and his like bone and ashes end up in the same urn and burial place as Patroclus so they're like eternally mm. buried together which again I'm like it sounds pretty much like they had more than just like like we're best friends uh-huh. energy like with each other so after Achilles died, he had this beautiful armor from Hephaestus, right? So Ajax mm-hmm. was kind of like, oh, I think I deserve this armor. I think it definitely belongs to me and should be mine. And Odysseus disagreed and felt like it should be his. It should probably go to his. And so they kind of had this argument going on among like all the chiefs, like who should take this really great Hephaestus armor, whether it should be Odysseus or whether it should be Ajax. And there was a secret vote and Odysseus pretty much with like a landslide amount of votes was the one who was picked to get the armor, which made Ajax really, really mad. And he was like, how dare you not give it to me? So he decided what he was going to do was kill Agamemnon and Menelaus. So Athena, seeing his designs and 
still being on the side of the Greeks, decided that what she was going to do was she was going to strike Ajax with madness. And so at night when he went to go and attack Agamemnon, Menelaus, and their armies, instead what he ended up doing was attacking their flocks and herds, which were for food, and had gone Mm -hmm. out and thought that he was like slaughtering tons of soldiers and just like going crazy. And then grabbing a huge ram, thinking that he had Odysseus, he like tied him up in front of his tent. Again, it was a ram (laughs) tied him up in front of his tent and just like went wild Uh out of control, savagely like beating this poor ram RIP this ram. And after he had this wave of madness uh, kind of end and he looked and he saw what he did, he was like, Oh no, everybody's going to think like, I've totally disgraced myself. I have completely disgraced myself because what I meant to do was a disgraceful act Mm -hmm. of like attacking all these people. But now what I've done is even more disgraceful. I've killed a bunch of like helpless animals that were supposed to be for our food that they were supposed like, everybody is going to know how awful I am. And so this is Ajax the greater. His fate was horrible because he decided that what he was going to do was to kill himself it says the greeks would not burn his body on a funeral pyre because suicide was not something that they honor Mm -hmm. with a funeral pyre so after losing achilles and ajax like very quickly like one right after the other the greeks started to worry that they weren't actually going to be able to pull this off that like they still weren't in any better position than they were before so they went to a prophet to ask, you know, what what do we need to do? What can help us out? So there were two things that they needed to do to give them an advantage. They needed to go and get Hercules's bow and arrow. So Hercules was a longtime friend of several of these guys. They had gone on the quest for the Golden Fleece together. Like, they were all BFFs. But Hercules, or Heracles, had died before this. And in this, like, kind of weird side story that I skipped, because (laughs) it's neither here nor there, Hercules's bow and arrow had been given to one of Hercules or Heracles's best friends. And that best friend had come on the boat earlier in the story with everybody. But he I think it was like he had gotten bitten or something by like a poison snake. And he wasn't strong enough to like go into battle. And so they ended up ditching him on an island. But they left him there with the bow and arrow for Hercules because they were like, well, at least he'll be able to get some food, even if he dies from like snake poison or whatever. Uh Um, And so they just kind of like left him there. So then somebody when this prophet was like, oh, yeah, if we're going to win, somebody needs to go back to that island and see if that guy will let us borrow the bow and arrow after we ditched him out there. (laughs) Hey. Hey, buddy um how's it going it's been 10 years oh my gosh yeah like assuming that guy's still alive like oh let's go borrow that bow from him as in let's go yeah. recover the bow from this guy's corpse because he definitely died of poisonous snake bite when we ditched him on the island yeah great So that was an item that they needed to go and get, which they did. They went back and they got the bow and arrow and they got the guy, Odysseus, who had been, again, longtime friend. They'd gone down this uh, Jason, the Argonauts situation, Golden Fleece uh, thing. They knew each other really well. He was able to, you know, get it sorted out. So once they had this bow and arrow and this guy, they actually ended up having the 
the right medicine in Greece to treat whatever this snake bite, the whatever the poison situation was. Mm-hmm. Which I'm like, this guy was dealing with that for the last ten years. Anyway, yeah, it's fine. Ten years of I don't think that is the thing, but okay. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, wait, it turns out that we have the doctors that could have helped you this whole time. Like, mm. Suspicious. This guy goes into battle with his bow and arrow, and the first person that he is able to hit with this bow and arrow is Paris. Oh, man. So Paris, who has just, you know, come back into the picture and uh-huh. been the one that killed Achilles, now Hercules' bow and arrow gets shot and the first person it hits is Paris. So Paris is hurt and dying. As Paris was dying, he begged to be taken back to the tree nymph from before Mm. that he ditched because he knew that she was a master of healing and would be able to help him out. Because right now in this story, Artemis isn't doing her healing to help anybody. She's getting her ears boxed by someone else with her own bow. Yeah. So he is taken back to the hill where he met those three goddesses who were asking him, oh, we have so many things that we could gift to you if you just pick out which of us is the most beautiful. Mm. Back at the beginning of the story, back before any of this happened, he is plopped back on that hillside where he was once a shepherd. He sees the wind nymph who was there and he asks if she would be able to heal him. And she says... No. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's like absolutely not. But in a sad story, which I wish I'm like, Ugh, I wish this didn't happen. She watches him as he dies. Mm. And then in her brokenheartedness, she kills herself. Oh, come on. He's not worth it. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> he is not worth it. Anyway, Troy did not fall just because Paris was dead. There was something else. That needed to be done because, and this I thought was interesting because the prophet in this story, again, these are two separate stories. And so they don't like they were written by two separate people. So it's like they don't Mm -hmm. totally like jive with each other. But the prophet said like, oh, well, another thing that's stopping us from being able to defeat the Trojans is that they have a sacred image of Athena inside of their city called the Palladium. And as long as the Trojans have the Palladium inside of Troy, we won't be able to attack them and destroy it, which I think is really interesting because Athena wasn't on their side and mm-hmm. the Iliad. Athena yeah. was on the Greeks. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting that this guy's like, oh yeah, we're not going to be able to defeat them because they have the sacred image of her. And so this kind of heist situation goes on uh, where like Odysseus, you know, ends up at sneaking into Troy so that they can take the Palladium and take it back to camp. So once they have that, they're trying to figure out, okay, now that we have this, we're never going to be able to destroy the city of Troy unless we can get physically inside the city of Troy. And this is where the wooden horse comes in. And it's so funny because I feel like I always see it depicted as like, oh, a Trojan horse and like knock, knock. And like the people are like, oh, a present. We'll take it in. Yeah. And like this like doop, 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 doop thing, which is like not the situation. Because Odysseus has to come up with like this 
whole strategic plan of like what they're going to do. So what they do, obviously, build this giant horse to hide troops inside. But how do they get them to wheel it inside? So they decide what they need to do is they need to make it look like they all decided like, oh, we're tired of fighting. This has gone on long enough. You guys are so strong. We're never going to be able to defeat you. So we left. So they hide their boats. The majority of the army gets onto these boats and sails to the other side of an island that is like off the coast, Mm -hmm. blocking the view so that if you were standing where their army used to be, You you would see. Yeah. They're just gone. They just left. Wow. They, in the middle of the night, packed up, got everything on their boats, and they're gone. Nowhere to be seen. And that all that was left was this this giant wooden horse and one Greek guy. Mm -hmm. So this one Greek guy's job was super, super important and super dangerous because they could have just been like, oh, no, we're going to kill you. So... Well, his job was to go and like bang on the gates, like bang, bang, bang. And they're like, like, what do you want? And him being like, help, I want to become a citizen of Troy. Mm. And they're like, why? And he's like, oh, well, because like the whole Greek army decided to leave, but uh, they were told to, you know, sack, make one last sacrifice for, you know, their safety leaving. And they had to sacrifice like one person and they drew lots and they decided that they were going to sacrifice me. But I ran away in the middle of the night and I know that they want to kill me. So I'm not safe going back to Greece. So like, I want to become a Trojan citizen. And they're like, okay, well, what's up with that horse? And he's like, oh, that's a special uh, sacrifice that they created. And it's a piece that's for the gods. And they were hoping that you would see it and burn it and that it would anger the gods so much that they would attack you and just that the gods would destroy you and they wouldn't have to. Mm. And they were like, oh, well, we're not going to destroy it. In fact, we're going to take extra good special care of it (laughs) and we're going to wheel it into the city. So Cassandra, who was one of, it was Hector's sister and, oh, Cassandra. Oh, Cassandra. She has like the worst story in like all this, Cassandra. She had been cursed. We won't get into a ton of like her backstory because don't worry, there's like other bad stuff in the future. She had been cursed that she would be able to prophesy things but never be listened to. And so she was warning them, warning the Trojans not to bring the horse into the city because... It was dangerous. It would bring the downfall of Troy. But of course, nobody listened to her, as was her situation. But anyway, bring the craven image in, bear it to Athena, fit gift for the child of Zeus. Who of the young but hurried forth, who of the old would stay at home with song and rejoicing they brought death in, treachery and destruction. Like, excellent, beautiful. (laughs) So obviously, once the... um, Once the sun went down, the Greeks that were inside of the horse snuck out. The ships that were hiding behind the island came around and all of Troy was attacked and sacked. It said it was not fighting. It was butchery. Mm. They basically... They killed every single man inside of Troy. There were a few people who were able to make it out. So pretty much all of the men 
And like children were killed. Some of the women were taken as war prizes. One of the most tragic things of all was Hector's wife and son were grabbed and the son who after all of the other royalty basically Uh was killed his son who again was this like small child that was like so little that you know when he saw his father dressed in armor didn't recognize him and was like afraid this little boy was thrown over the tower walls in front of his mother and he fell to his death. Yeah. I'm like, absolutely awful. And then Hector's wife was like taken away on a ship to be like a slave and concubine. Aphrodite did come in and grab Helen, which (laughs) Aphrodite, that it's not a hero move considering that Aphrodite was the one that, you know, took this woman. Yeah, and caused this whole mess to begin with. Yeah. And so it's like, wow, it, it truly is the least that she could do to grab Helen while this was happening and mm-hmm. give Helen back to Menelaus. And he said he gladly received her and he sailed to Greece with her. And Agamemnon found Cassandra. Well, Cassandra went to hide herself. Cassandra was Hector's sister, the one that nobody would listen to. Mm -hmm. She went to hide inside of the temple of Athena and she was attacked and raped by Ajax the Lesser, which Athena was so disgusted that she had him killed, which, yeah. But then Cassandra was taken by Agamemnon as a war prize And he fell in love with her so much on the ride back to, you know, back to Greece that he was kind of like, oh, you know what? I might even like her better than I like my own wife, which when he got home, his wife was still very upset about Agamemnon sacrificing their daughter when the wind wouldn't let them pass. So when Agamemnon got back with Cassandra, His wife was so upset with him about mm, several things like sacrificing their daughter to the wind gods that she murdered Cassandra and Agamemnon, which good. (laughs) (laughs) Get what's coming to you, old Aggie. Also, what is an interesting thing, depending on how the teller tells it, Mm -hmm. is that this like king and ruler Agamemnon fell in love with a younger and fairer, Mm. more beautiful woman. And that was going to kind of unseat, you know, the power that she had as like the main wife. And so she had that person done away with, which I'm like, oh, that's got some interesting echoes. Considering that this is the story to launch our, our Snow White series. So these last lines come from a tale of what happens to the Trojan women when when Troy falls. They're from Euripides. Troy has perished the great city. Only the red flame now lives there. The dust is rising, spreading out like a great wing of smoke, and all is hidden. We now are gone, one here, one there, and Troy is gone forever. Farewell, dear city. Farewell, my country, where my children lived. There below, the Greek ships wait i think it's really interesting it's told from like the perspective of women 
like mm-hmm. that last part because there's some of the ones that have the least amount of airtime and like the whole story is like the women but yeah. really it's like the people who are the most affected by this story which so much of this story hinges on blaming like women for like oh because you know, these women were so vain, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, like these yeah. women were so vain that like they caused this or that, you know, because Helen was a prize or that Agamemnon and Achilles were having an argument over these women that they were taking or Hera was wooing Zeus. Like so much of this story, women are used as like pawns and objects to, but then to be jealous over, to fight over, but then they also get blamed as objects. Yeah. The blame is placed on them for being objects. It's so interesting looking at the story, especially the way that Euripides was like looking at the women who are left at the end of this. The city's completely destroyed. Their husbands are gone. Their children are like either also been taken away or killed and they're being like shipped off to another city to be treated as objects to be mistreated. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just comes down to like this story to me isn't a story about like, oh, like women's vanity. It's about male ego Mm -hmm. of like, oh, you took something that belongs to me. Yeah. And now I have a point that I have to prove. Yeah, absolutely. And it's in typical Greek mythology fashion, just like absolutely crazy, super violent, super yeah. complicated. Um, but yeah, and it's like so many characters, like both mortals and gods and how the gods get involved. Like that's always a really interesting aspect. And I, it's interesting too, when you talk about, you know, the role of women in this, how different it is for like the mortal women and the like goddesses. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, the goddesses do get blamed for being like vain and like wanting someone to pick like who the most beautiful of them all is, which, you know, another goddess uh, set up that whole trap by throwing that apple into the mix. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, she definitely should be blamed, playing on these like weaknesses of these (laughs) women. But, you know, like just the fact like when they're taking sides and they're like fighting shit, it's like the, the goddesses have like so much more like agency and action and things that they do themselves than any of the mortal women do, which just makes me wonder about like, I mean, obviously, yeah, if you're, you're a God, you're at some sort of like elevated status, but why is that same kind of like split that seems so apparent in the mortals? Like, Oh, like where women are more treated like objects or possessions or whatever. But when you go up into like the realm of like the gods, that that same dynamic does not work out. Like you kind of have, yeah, and maybe it's partially just the way you're telling, but it is kind of like the way the situation is like with Zeus, like kind of afraid to take sides because he doesn't want to make his wife mad, you know, like yeah, it's just it's just interesting that that difference exists, and I makes me wonder why you know and what oh yeah what is causing that, that that it's like these gods are allowed to follow kind of like their own rules, so even the the female gods don't necessarily have to follow the same rules that mortal women would have to follow. Right. They don't have to fall into the same like gendered categories as mortal women. They there's kind of this playing field that they're allowed on in the stories because it's a story, mm-hmm. which is so fascinating how how much it doesn't carry into life, like where they can be like, oh, obviously like a goddess of nature is going to be like very powerful or a goddess of like war is going to be so like powerful. But then 
you know, it's like, well, why don't you view women, women as capable of these like same like attributes or like allowed to occupy the same spheres like on the battlefield? Like, why are they relegated to just like one area? But yeah, I'm like this this story outside of, you know, talking about um, like the elements that are going to be Snow White relevant and like adjacent. The story itself is like one of the like epics of like world history, world heritage, like to look at and study where it's like, oh, these stories have echoes all over the place in other, you know, epic stories. We still see, you know, like these these things get made into like blockbuster movies. Like with Brad Pitt playing Achilles as he should. (laughs) Oh, Achilles, like some of the things you do not okay somewhat you know tying it back into the snow white aspect and going against what i said just moments ago that is kind of interesting even though the you know these goddesses aren't playing by the same rules as mortal women have to there is so much emphasis on somewhat like the soft power aspect that you were talking Mm -hmm. about like yeah you know it's such a big deal that for these three goddesses that one of them be declared the fairest of them all because that's one of the ways that they get their that she gets her power. And the same thing with like when uh, Paris is given this choice of like winning a war, being an emperor over like Eurasia or marrying a super hot woman. Like he goes for the hot, like beauty becomes something that is like a very important uh, characteristic for women, both mortals and goddesses to have. Yeah. Which I, you know, like it's, it's, it does point out something very interesting and unfair about society even to this day i think we've said this before on other episodes of the podcast because beauty comes up a lot where it almost is advantageous to to be just a five or a six you know (laughs) keep out of the the the, out from under the axe being a 10 being 11 like looking too hot and like you're risking you know being noticed and in the middle of like something terrible it is like to your advantage in these stories to you know be a five or a six or heaven forbid a two or a three you know just go for it yeah and one of the interesting things about beauty as like something of value or a source of power is that just by its nature and by the things that most you know, cultures, especially, I mean, I don't have much to say about ancient cultures necessarily, but our culture today, definitely like beauty is one of those things like that is associated very much with males and females with youth, but yeah. especially with women. And when that's one of the most valuable things that you can possess, like the older you get, the more naturally that is going to in the eyes of the uh, lots of the world, like that is going to fade. So your power fades as you get older, Yeah, which to some degree happens with men too, as far as like, oh, you know, like the physical power, like being a great fighter or whatever, that's something that's going to fade with age. But in lots of other ways that, you know, are more typically associated with men, especially in these like stories of like, you know, political power or like being a leader or you know having wealth like those are things that actually can continue to grow with age and so one thing that we see i mean again taking into where we're going to get with this eventually i think with snow white there's this whole idea of like an older powerful woman being threatened by someone who is more who is younger and more beautiful than her and it's like there's nothing that she can do to be more beautiful than this younger woman except to just get rid of this more beautiful younger woman you know and it creates this really interesting kind of aspect there which again is kind of the whole thing that happened with even aphrodite in this case like wanting to be the most beautiful and she's kind of like going after this thing with trying to protect the like investment that she had made in paris by you know fulfilling that that wish for him 
like her yeah. way of trying to get power over some of the other other goddesses. It's just like it's such an interesting and fascinating power dynamic that you can see where that came from as far as like an idea that exists just in society. And then how it plays out in stories and then why that that element in a story resonates. Yeah. Why it rings true, why it's like, oh, well, of course, this older woman, you know, would want to kill somebody younger and prettier than her. And it's like, am I talking about Snow White or am I talking about uh, Agamemnon's wife? It's hard to tell, you know, like, oh, of course, this beautiful woman would be at the center of like all this contention, like, of Mm -hmm. course. So you and you can see because of how society already has that dynamic in it, why those motifs just keep coming up in stories, why like they keep happening, why if somebody was looking at this story that we retold, how the elements that they took out to include in other stories were relevant. So hopefully this story was enjoyable just for, you know, its own sake. I don't know. Enjoyable is kind of a strong word for all the like, well, yeah, murder and dragon bodies and stuff. It's what we go to the movies for. It's the entertainment that yeah. we seek, as horrible as it is. So hopefully it was interesting. I know I'm a person that like obviously... I feel like probably many of us have heard about like the Trojan War or, you know, references to it or seen Trojan horse memes or whatever. So hopefully this gives more context to that. If you haven't been exposed to this story before, hopefully this was a fun exposure. Yep. I definitely wanted to say that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That was the correct way to put that. Because this story is really like interesting and relevant in its own right for many motifs that it holds, but also how it pops up in different cultural aspects, whether it's in blockbuster movies, whether referenced in other, you know, great works of literature or comic book hero stories, (laughs) whatever. This story is like relevant and important to know so hopefully that was good but also hopefully we can keep in mind some of the motifs that we saw we can you know keep that apple of discord and the fairest of them all kind of in our mind and even the idea of you know trying to get rid of somebody by sending them away to be murdered by somebody else but they don't actually end up getting (laughs) murdered (laughs) and then they come back and uh, are fated to ruin your life Hopefully we can keep all of that in our mind. And I'm excited for the rest of this series as we delve into even more. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar You finish your thought because this is kind oh, of Oh, no, I didn't have any thoughts. Oh. Not good ones or relevant ones.